hello, and welcome to Outward Slate's podcast, where we support all the new yous you create in this new year, as long as they are extremely deeply queer. I'm Brian Lauder, an editor at Slate, and we've got a somber, but I think really important show for you today. But before we get into it, I wanted to offer just a quick content warning. This episode will discuss suicide, not in any graphic detail, but just as a thing that happens in the world. And so if that's not something that's for you, we hope to see you on the show next week. So last November, news surfaced of a tragic situation down in Smith Station, Alabama. The town's mayor and local pastor, F.L. Bubba Copeland, committed suicide after a week-long campaign by a conservative news site to out Copeland as a trans woman. In the aftermath, my Slate colleague, Evan Urquhart, was troubled not only by Copeland's death, but by what this vicious right-wing assault indicated about where anti-queer and trans conservatives, who are, of course, a growing force in this country right now, would like to take us. He decided to write about it and look into the history of forced outings in America, and the result is a sobering and essential new piece titled The Outing of Bubba Copeland. I had the pleasure of editing the piece, and I have the pleasure of welcoming Evan back to Outward today. If you need a refresher, in addition to being an Outward contributor, Evan is Slate's comments moderator, and he's also the founder and editor of Assigned Media. We'll be back with Evan right after the break. So as a starting place, why don't you just tell us what we know about who Bubba Copeland was? You know, I, I mentioned that he was the mayor of this town. And also maybe we can have a quick note about pronouns here, because you and I both were struggling a little bit with that in the writing process. I'm kind of using he when we're talking about Bubba, but as we'll see, it gets more complicated than that. And maybe they is more appropriate. So you can speak on that too. But tell us a little bit about who we know Bubba was, about their life, and all of that before this tragedy happened. So I don't think you can understand who Bubba Copeland was without understanding the town of Smith Station, Alabama, where he was the mayor, he was also the pastor, and I believe he also owned and ran a grocery store. So um, this was someone who was sort of central to this very small, you know, conservative Southern community. And, you know, accounts from people who knew him have said, you know, this was someone who cared very deeply about the community, you know, and and sort of had a a public life that was very much, you know, central to to the small town life. What we also found out in early November after a right wing news outlet called 1819 publicized it was that Bubba Copeland had a sort of double life. And this is where we kind of get into the pronouns. I have tended to use he, him pronouns for Bubba Copeland, a sort of very public figure in a very small town. Right. But there was also Brittany Summerlin, Brittany Blair Summerlin, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Who described herself on um, Instagram, on Reddit, um, I believe on maybe a few other places online as a as a transgender woman as a transgender girl and would sort of engage with people as if she was an out transgender woman um and so you know i think it's very difficult to kind of talk about what someone's you know identity was when they're not here yeah, to clarify to, to, that to tell us, right. but i have tended to use sort of she her for britney summerlin mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Who, who used those pronouns online and he, him for Bubba Copeland because he never asked for anything else. 
Yeah, I think that's reasonable. So you just mentioned 1819. So tell us about the campaign that they waged against Copeland and how that went down. Right. So to give a little bit of of sort of background, I kind of scroll transphobic headlines all day. All day, right, right. As part of Assigned Media, Mm -hmm. which is a website dedicated to fact-checking and providing context for anti-trans story in the right-wing press. It's been, uh, you know, intense focus of the right-wing press for more than a year now. And, you know, so I kind of read whatever the latest is and kind of try and look for, you know, what's the context, what's going on. Yeah. So I became aware of this story really early on, um, I believe it was the day after they published. Mm -hmm. Which I think was November 1st for our listeners. Yeah. Right. So on November 2nd, I became aware of it and I didn't want to touch it because they were ruining a person's life. I mean, in the story, you know, they talk about this person begging them not to publish the story and deleting all of their accounts Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when they're sort of confronted with the evidence of this double life. They went ahead anyway. They published four stories in like less than a week, all on this one person's kind of, you know, secret online life. And they ruined this person's life. So the first story was sort of revealing uh, Copeland's, you know, double life or secret life. And then they went on to publish, I think, what, three more pieces over the course of the week? They published four stories in the in one week. And yeah, that first one um, was sort of uh, presented as a bombshell. Right. And so, you know, as I said in the intro, Copeland is pushed to suicide. I mean, it, it becomes a really, really dark situation. There is a slow speed police chase and and then, you know, he ends his life, which is horrible. You know, you, you just mentioned that you spend a lot of time looking at stories like this, that this is part of your job. You're used to horror, but you write in the piece that this one sort of hit you a little differently, that you felt like something something else was going on here that merited a little more analysis and, and thinking. Can you talk about what that was and, and sort of what drew you to wanting to, to write something longer about it? Yeah. I mean, my first interaction with this story, I decided not to write about it because I'm not going to say I, you know, predicted what would happen, but I just had an awful feeling about uh, this is a person's life being ruined Mm -hmm. and the less attention I bring to it, you know, kind of better. And then, you know, by the end of the week, you know, I saw on social media, that this person had committed suicide and I instantly knew who it was mm-hmm. and what the story was. And, you know, I'm, I'm not a historian, but it just really felt to me kind of instinctively like something out of a different time mm. that a newspaper would make the outing of a queer person, this kind of story on its own with kind of nothing else. I mean, there were some other things that they kind of, added later detail, but like that, this, you know, that was the core of it. Right. And for that to be a story and for that to be just used to like ruin an individual person's life, isn't something that we've seen. I feel Mm. isn't something we've seen for, for many, many recently. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and you know this piece really uh, is is as much about the past, right? That past as it is about the present. Um, you know, you write about how you felt this sort of call to look toward queer history, particularly pre-Stonewall queer history, to understand what that world was like and where we are now. What what were you hoping to find there? What what, what was your sort of initial question about pre-Stonewall life and and outing as it pertains to outing? Well, you know, I've I've sort of had this 
this kind of dark obsession for a couple of years, it kind of hit me, and this is a very obvious, you know, thing to realize, but it kind of hit me that, you know, people who were, you know, in jazz clubs in the 1920s mm. were still alive in the 1940s and 50s. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that these kind of young, vibrant, gender-bending people yeah. would have just been my age, would have been middle-aged at the time when our country had kind of the most repression. Mm-hmm. And so this story felt like a chance to ask about what that was like, because I am worried that at least for some people mm-hmm. in this country, that's the environment that we may have to experience. Again, yeah. And so I wanted to kind of go into the history and kind of try to to understand, you know, what it would be like to live under a situation where you have to keep your identity secret um, and but but also that the press feels empowered to dig into your mm-hmm, past mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. find out and they can just kind of ruin you um and that that was kind of an active concern well i think i think one of the things that your piece does really well and evocatively is actually sorts of uh, paints a picture of, of what that world was like through through you know you interview a couple of historians in the piece um so i wonder if you could just do that for our listeners here what was life kind of like in the 50s and 60s which is, is the period you're talking about with regard to this threat of outing, you mentioned the press. Who, who were the antagonists? Like, what what were the consequences? What does that world look like? Yeah, so you know, I kind of found out that my intuition was kind of even a little bit more dead on than I had thought, um, because you know, newspapers in you know the 1940s and 50s would almost have like a beat reporter often whose job was to, you know, the police would call them up and they would go to the local gay club when it was being raided and take pictures of the gender nonconforming, of of the men in dresses kind of all lined up against the wall. And the police would take down their names and would pass it to the reporters and ruining people's lives almost as like a funny story or as a a regular feature. Yeah, their name, right? I mean, you write their names and places of work and all of this would be published like in the newspaper the next the next day as a news story. Yeah. And for the most part, people would be fired from their jobs. And, you know, it's really not clear how many um, committed suicide. I always really try to stress, like most people don't commit suicide. Um, you know, you know, gay people or others, like most people find a way to survive, but it certainly was um, one of the outcomes that could happen when people were publicly shamed and humiliated and, you know, often lost their families. These were often, you know, people who were married, men who were married to women um, or gender nonconforming people who were married to women um, and who had jobs and would just, you know, kind of all of it would be gone. Yeah. And that was just the way that that was just sort of the shape of life. You you could expect that. Tell us one of the things that you mentioned in your sort of in your reporting is the Mattachine Society, which we've talked about on the show off and on before, you know, a leading part of the homophile movement um, in the 50s. Can you tell us a little bit about who the Mattachine Society was, but also what was their goal really with regard to the press? Because you, you speak about that in particular. Yeah, I talked to Jules Gill-Peterson, who... Um, listeners may know. <laughs> who had kind of studied the papers of one of the leaders who was part of the Mattachine Society. You know, what she found was that that changing the press coverage and changing this dynamic was one of the major goals of that kind of pre-Stonewall very in some ways, you know, tepid mm-hmm. activism. Um, I, I believe that, you know, members wouldn't even 
like use their real names with other members. This is kind of how. Yeah, it was it was really underground. That's true. How paranoid and difficult it was to kind of have anything like this sort of organizing. But one of the things that that the San Francisco group really focused on was having better relationships with the police, but also trying to have stories mm. um, in the press that weren't uniquely, you know, um, uniformly negative and trying to shift this kind of constant um, tone. And I believe they also, um, you know, kind of defended people in court who, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. were the victims mm-hmm. of these kind of raids. Yeah. One other thing that you go into a little bit, and it's actually, it's funny, we just talked about it with regard to the show Fellow Travelers, uh, the Showtime series Fellow Travelers on the podcast a couple episodes ago, is the Lavender Scare which is happening in this general period. Can you just remind listeners sort of what that was and and how that fed into this climate really of, you know, just great terror around being outed? Yeah. So the period that I was talking about first where there's kind of a beat reporter and they go down yeah. to the, you know, gay club is a, is a little bit more in the 40s. And then um, I believe it was in the 1950s yeah. when um, McCarthyism kind of like, decided that, you know, that gays were communists and mm-hmm. that gays were a blackmail risk. Now, again, this is a very kind of self-fulfilling prophecy <laughs> right, yeah. because the reason there's such a blackmail li- risk is because of homophobia. if anyone <laughs> finds out, yeah, their their lives are going to be ruined. So, yeah, um, yeah. so they set out to find everyone out and ruin their lives preemptively mm-hmm. um, to make sure they couldn't be blackmailed. So, so that's... Um, that's a very much the the logic of homophobia at the period. <laughs> yeah. But you know, so in in that case it was national and there were many many people fired, there were congressional hearings mm-hmm. and there was a very public, you know, well publicized suicide that was actually the person who was outed was the son of I believe it was a US senator. And the U.S. senator committed suicide because his son was going to be outed. Yeah, yeah. And it is perhaps maybe not, you know, the moment that, you know, suicide became so associated with people's impression of of the LGBTQ community then, you know, gay or, or homosexual is probably the word they would have used for everyone. But it certainly kind of cemented that and like kind of took that nationwide as sort of part of how people could understand and and picture and stereotype you know gay people or or who we now call queer people yeah i think that's actually a great place to take a break um we will be right back with more and and connecting all of this uh, history to sort of our present right after a very short break Just before the break, you were telling us about this association that forms between sort of queer people or gay people and and suicide. Can you say a little bit more about that? Because I, I find that that was one of the interesting beats in your piece where you're sort of saying that, like, even if, as you said earlier, not we don't know how many people would have committed suicide from this kind of thing, but certainly it happened. But nonetheless, this idea that like queer people are suicidal or, or like, you know, more apt to do that comes becomes very ingrained, I guess, sort of in this period. What did you learn about that? Because I, I, that's an interesting idea. Yeah. So how the history seems to have kind of gone was that there were some of these sort of suicides is some of them were high profile of people who had been outed people who had like 
really just lost everything, lost their entire social standing. And then, you know, sort of a little later, you know, psychologists started to sort of talk about suicide more in the way that we sort of think about it today as being sort of more likely because of ambient prejudice and, uh, you know, and bullying and, and sort of, and being kind of also going along with like, well, more drug use or more depression or more, um, you know, poverty and that kind of stuff. And, you know, I think that it's a difficult line because, it seems, you know, pretty clear to me that that people, you know, gay activists, but people who care about the welfare of, you know, queer people have sought to use this kind of dramatic suicide story as a way to try and explain to the mainstream, like, why is this bad? And so this kind of Bubba Copeland story has a lot of kind of echoes of like, well, it would be bad for 1819 to ruin this person's life, even if he didn't kill himself. He did kill himself. And so it's kind of an opportunity, but also a little bit of a danger to kind of reinforce this stereotype and this, um, you know, kind of persistent association between, you know, queer people and suicide. And again, most most of us, you know, actually, you know, live. Most of us make it. Um, but these kind of dramatic. Well, there's something like pathologizing about it, right? Where it's like, right? It's like assigning this this thing. It almost becomes a kind of homophobia or something. Well, and very uh, very explicitly in the right wing kind of propaganda stuff that I read, you know, and I saw this, you know, when I was much younger. Um, used against um, lesbian and gay people, but they will, you know, point to the increased risk of suicide for trans people and say, this is why you can't allow people to transition, because they're at a higher risk of suicide. So, and it, it was absolutely the same for you know, suicide statistics that were more about lesbians and gays, you know, 20 years ago. That's interesting because you, you, one of the quotes you have in the piece from the historian um, Charles Kaiser, uh, he suggests, you know, that the trans folks today are basically in a similar place to gay men in the period that we were talking about, the pre-Stonewall period that we were talking about. Can you like, do you agree with that? Can you unpack that a little bit? Um, I thought that was an interesting idea. There, there are definitely resonances. I mean, I think I'm in, you know, Charlottesville, which you might imagine as like an analog to a San Francisco, but I think there are a lot more of the, of them. You know what I mean? So my life is not, um, you know, is not lived under this this shadow and this constant threat. But you know, for trans people who are in you know smaller towns or or in red states or or especially both, there is I think people who live their whole lives in the closet knowing that they're trans but never transitioning. And then the other side of that is people who are stealth, people who no one knows that they're transgender and, you know, transitioned and kind of moved away and kind of reinvented their life, but who live with the fear that, you know, someone might find that out. And I think the the current kind of, I, I think that was kind of felt like it was kind of easing. It felt like it was kind of going away. I think I had a lot of hope that the stealth trans people that I kind of knew of would either not need to do that or be able to come out or that we wouldn't need to, you know, have younger generations wouldn't feel quite as much of a need to do that. And what this kind of you know, this current moral panic is doing is is really, I think, putting people back into that fear of, you know, there's no way that if anyone knew, knew this about me, yeah. 
that I could continue to have a normal life or be accepted in my community. This, that's a great segue, actually, to the the sort of last big chunk of your piece, which goes into to sort of where we are now. So you talk about the various ways that the right um, is trying to reinvent this climate of of terror for 2024. What are some of those ways, and how how do you how do you sort of see that climate and how it connects again to to this history that you looked at? Yeah, I mean, I think that the right explicitly wants to take us back to a time when when gay people stayed in the closet or when they didn't exist, yeah. depending on. At the very yeah, least, out of public, your, but yeah, yeah, right. I mean, we always existed. We always will exist. You can't yeah. sort of extinguish natural human variation, but you can make it so difficult that you know anyone who you know anyone who is you know publicly out, but also anyone who is you know outed, you know their life their life is ruined or they're you know. Um, facing criminal charge, you know, I mean, I think this is this interesting thing where it doesn't have to be, you don't have to be putting people in jail. The possibility that you could lose your job or that you could go to jail or that, you know, at any point down the line, that kind of thing could happen is enough to, you know, create a kind of climate of fear. And, you know, in Florida, you know, you can see me, the the listeners can't see me, but I would need to use female pronouns and use women's bathrooms. And I wouldn't be able to explain to the school children <laughs> why this was. It would be illegal for me to explain that I was transgender. And as you can see, like, I just look like a man. So how is a school going to hire me under those circumstances? Yeah. How am I going to, I just can't have You've been job. legislated out of that arena of of existence. Yeah. Right. And and it's sort of, you know, I think school teachers, um, and maybe daycare workers, people who are working with children are the kind of most vulnerable right now. Mm-hmm. But it's also a sign of where the climate that they want to bring back, where it's just not possible to live as a trans person in any kind of safety yeah. or comfort. And again, if as you said, if you if you do try, whether that's through maybe being stealth or what or not transitioning, like not socially transitioning or whatever it may be, you're still there's still that outing fear hanging over your head. I think this is honestly the part about the Bubba Copeland story that I find the most chilling is that Bubba Copeland followed the rules. Right. Right. Bubba Copeland did not come out. Bubba Copeland was not gender nonconforming. Bubba Copeland had a private life that I think he had every reason to believe would be respected by other white men of his community. And what 1919 said was no, like you're not allowed to have a private, secret trans existence. We'll, we will come into that private life and we will make sure you're not able to, you know, continue. And so that kind of changing of the rules, I didn't grow up in the South, but I believe you. I did. I did. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's no longer, well, you can, you know, you can do whatever you want. Just don't be public about it. It's we're going to come into your bedroom. And that's a changing of the, of the code, I believe that represents how far they're willing to take this. That's such an interesting point, because I think we've seen a similar changing of the rules around, which we knew would happen, but, you know, all of this, the anti-trans legislation started with, like, it's just about the kids, right? We're just we're just protecting the children. You know, everybody else will be, the adults will be fine, adults can do what they want. And of course, within, like, six months, they were going after adult medical care, and like, all, all of the things that we knew they would, but it's the, the goalposts, you know, shifted immediately. And I think that's exactly what you're describing here, where 
you're right. In the South, I, I would say that for a very long time, there was a kind of um, a, I don't know, like a detente or kind of like a live and let live idea that like, as long as you kept it quiet and out of people's faces, quote unquote, like you you could probably get away with living the way you wanted to, certainly as like a, a cis gay or a cis uh, lesbian, um, and maybe even as a trans person, depending on where you were. Uh, and you'd be left alone, right? People might know about it, but they kind of leave it be. And I think you're entirely right that this represents a kind of a shift, like a violation of that agreement, <laughs> you know, that tacit kind of agreement, which is really, really terrifying. I think, uh, you know, your, your piece, and maybe this is a place we can sort of end, your piece is not prescriptive, but I do wonder if you have any thoughts about what we can do to combat this. Like, is there a way to resist a return to this world where shame and fear are running everything? Or are you pessimistic about it? Because that might be, that's fine too, you know? I don't know if there's an answer, but I'm, I'm just curious if you have thoughts about that. I think it is... I think that coming out of the closet was a um like a political act <laughs> when I was a a college student it was still I I was kind of on the tail end of that but it was still seen as like this is how we resist and I think that it's really come to be seen as kind of the stakes have lowered it's really come to be seen as a personal choice and you know outing someone against their will has been you know seen as like just really com completely beyond the pale because it's a personal because it's a personal choice and and while i continue to think you know 1819 shouldn't be outing people against their will and neither should we i think it is important to kind of understand that no one can ruin you if you are out and public <laughs> about who you are so my first suggestion would be to have a renewed emphasis on encouraging people to come out not in a shaming way, not in a everyone has to live in the exact same way way, but in just a like, this is how you protect yourself is you you yeah, can't have yeah. these secrets and expect that you'll be left alone in this kind of climate. Mm. I, I think that doing a lot of work to try to welcome people who are fleeing states where the situation is worse, you know, trying to, you know, ha have a day a month or something where people are really encouraged to come and meet new people or, you know, in bigger cities or whatever. Like, I think there's more we can do to kind of make sure that people can leave and can not just leave, but like find land, some, people. land yeah, somewhere land somewhere. Yeah. In terms of, you know, I am very optimistic over the long term. I think that for trans people specifically, the fact that this medical treatment works and that it's so life transforming and positive that knowledge can't go back. Like we have an internet, we have, but you know, there's just too much of it out there. I think over the short term, I am concerned. I mean, this is why I've been obsessed with people in the 1920s and imagining what they were doing in the 1950s is because I do imagine, is this going to be me? And I would probably move to someplace where I wouldn't have to live that way. But it's, I do think we're going to have a rough, I mean, let's be optimistic, a rough decade or so, mm -hmm. <laughs> maybe a couple mm -hmm. decades. Sure. It's going to be very tough in rough red states and encouraging people and making room for people to leave and encouraging people to be out and to see being out as protective and necessary and not just this kind of personal choice that no one can kind of say anything on either way. Because I worry about, you know, I did a piece for you several years back on stealth trans men in the South. Right, and right. I don't think that they the safety that they had when I wrote that just a couple years ago, um, obtains anymore. Holds up. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think those are great, really great suggestions. Okay, I think, you know, there's more we could talk about with this piece, but I think people should probably just go read it because it's so wonderful. The piece is titled The Outing of Bubba Copeland, and you can read it now in Slate. Evan, um, before you go, uh, I thought I would ask if you have a gay agenda item for us. That is, if listeners don't know it, we tend to do that on the show at the end, little recommendation section, um, updates to the gay agenda. Evan, did you bring anything for us? Well, um, luckily you warned me because yes. <laughs> I mostly I mostly consume other people playing video games on Twitch. Right. But um, you know, there's this short documentary called Victoria um by I believe it's Eloisa Diaz. And um it is the story of a out transgender man in a conservative small town in Mexico who um gets pregnant and has a baby. Um, This is a guy who's on testosterone, who's very kind of male passing, and he decides to to have a child. It's a beautiful documentary. Um, I don't think many people know about it. Um, There's a little bit of transmasculine um, representation there. So I'd encourage people to check it out. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Yeah, I I hadn't heard of it until you mentioned it. So that's great. Great to know. All right. Well, our guest today has been Evan Urquhart. He is the founder and editor of Assigned Media, which we've talked about on the show before. You can go check that out at assignedmedia.org. Also an outward contributor and our fantastic community moderator here at Slate. Uh, Evan, thanks so much for writing this piece and, and for, for joining us today on the show. I'm always so glad to come. Right, that is the show for today. But just a reminder before we go, we're trying to do more advice on the show with Danny, Lavery, and friends. And so we need you to send us advice questions for that to happen. So send them to us at outwardpodcast.slate.com. We really prefer voice memos for this so that we can hear your beautiful voices, but email works too. You'll just have to hear me read it. We're looking for stuff about queer relationship dynamics, friendships that have gone sour, workplace drama, nosy family, anything like that that has a queer tinge to it, please send our way. You can also send us feedback and topic ideas at outwardpodcast.slate.com or via Facebook and X at Slate Outward. Just a reminder, as always, that by joining Slate Plus, you will get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like Working, and you will never, ever hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more about that, you can go to slate.com slash outwardplus. Our show is produced by the wonderful Palace Shaw. If you like Outward, please subscribe in your podcast app. Tell your friends, family, lovers, everyone about it so that they can rate and review along with you. Rate and review the show so that others can find it. Until next time, stay gay, everybody.